there are passages in scripture uh, which if you just meditated on those um, for the rest of your life, you didn't leave the passages. Uh, if you didn't leave that passage, you would, um, you would not plumb the depths of what is there. This is one of those passages that you just heard read to you. Uh, one of those passages that were you to try to describe uh, to somebody the riches of what it contains, uh, you would be hard-pressed to find the words to do so. It is, it's unparalleled you know, for the beauty that it conveys about who God is, uh, what he has done for us in Christ. Uh, verses 3 through 14 uh, form the introduction to one of the most beloved epistles in all of Scripture. And it really sets the stage for all of the gospel doctrines that get unpacked throughout the book of Ephesians. Paul, when he wrote verses 3 through 14, I, I think was very excited about what he was writing. He couldn't slow down. Um, see, our English translation uh, breaks it down into five sentences and two paragraphs. It is all one sentence uh, in the Greek. One sentence. The longest sentence, I believe, in the history of the world Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I think that was due to Paul's excitement as he was writing. Um, this is a passage that we're very familiar with at Sun Valley Church because it holds so many of the core doctrines that we think define um, gospel truth and the, the, the assurance of our salvation and the great things that we have in Jesus. And this morning, I want to just focus in on the last part of this long sentence, verses 11 through 14, and if you would permit me, I'd read it to you again. Uh, in him, which would be referring to Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So sometimes, you know, Christians, we'll ask ourselves when we, when we think about it, um, why me? Why am I saved? Why did God have mercy on my soul when he could have left me to the condemnation that I so richly deserve? Why has he chosen to bestow his favor on me and what is my life's direction? That it, does it reflect that? It, it, what's its purpose? Why am I put on this earth at this time? The, the passage that's before us answers all of those questions, and it answers them in two parts. Uh, in verses 11 through 12, we see our salvation in terms of an inheritance that is given to us by the Father in Christ. And then secondly, in verses 13 through 14, he... Uh, he terms our, salva our salvation, um, he frames our salvation in terms of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to be looking at uh, in particular. So we have an inheritance from the Father in Christ and the seal of our salvation in the Holy Spirit. And through all of these verses and through this whole passage, we have this great fact that our salvation is holy and completely Trinitarian. Um, that is, we can understand nothing about how God has saved us except in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which I think I've said before is the doctrine that defines all other doctrines in the Christian faith, is, is the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And so the fact of who God is is at the base of our salvation and how it was accomplished. And this morning, I'm not so sure that we're going to be look at, looking at anything that you may not know already, but what I hope, what I pray is that we would be seeing things with new eyes, things that we've seen before, but that they would be struck fresh in our soul by the Holy Spirit as he shows us the riches of what is here, what he has given us, and how he has assured the promises of the gospel to our hearts. And so let's go forward, beginning in the first section of this passage, by the inheritance from the Father that we have. See, in verse 11, it says that we have obtained in Christ an inheritance. Well, that's pretty, people like inheritances, Generally speaking, you don't always like the reason you get an inheritance, um, depending on how much you liked the person. Uh, I'm just kidding, that's morbid. Um, but the, the fact of an inheritance itself is usually a good thing. It's, it's a blessing bestowed on somebody. Okay, something they didn't earn. It's something that was given to them as a gift. And we might ask, and we probably should ask, well, what is this inheritance? And given that we're at the last part of the longest sentence ever, uh, we should probably go back to the beginning of the sentence and find some clues as to what the inheritance is. And we do find that. I believe that if you were to go back to verse 3, you would see something of what this inheritance is. That the God of our, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You go home and meditate on that and come back when you've gotten to the bottom of it. Yo, I will never see you again. It is, it's, it's that easy to say and that unfathomable to actually comprehend. When we see every spiritual blessing, we should be very careful not to simply think that these are only immaterial things that we can't see. What Paul is doing is he's communicating to us that everything that we enjoy, every gift, whether spiritual or physical, present or coming in the future and into eternity from the Father, every blessing is given to us as part of this inheritance that we have because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how has he given us this inheritance? How has he given us this inheritance? And it's precisely that question, how he's given us that inheritance, that, he, that Paul is answering when he says, having been predestined. And so the answer to how we have received an inheritance is our predestination, which we see in verse 11. Now, predestination, think of, uh, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of predestination, but fix it in your mind, what you think of when you hear the word predestination. Back as uh, juniors in Bible college, my wife and I, uh, we had a class. It was a long class. It was a class with a long name, Anthropology, Christology, Soteriology, which is Man, Christ, and Salvation. It was kind of like the class that you, you know, eyes wide open because you've always heard things about this class. It took you a while to actually get the name down. What was the workload, what's the workload going to be like? And um, going into it, we had it on good authority from some friends that um, you would be exposed to something called Calvinism. And we didn't know what that was. But from the reputation, we thought, 
Well, whatever happens, let us be careful not to become them, Calvinists. And so we went in uh, pretty well set. And uh, the professor was gone one day. I think he was pre presenting a paper at a conference or something. And our guest lecturer was R.C. Sproul uh, via video. Um, and so we watched this uh, video chosen by God from R.C. Sproul, you see. And we thought, this guy, I'd never heard of him before, he is, makes a lot of sense. Uh, he is really explaining some critical scriptures uh, in a very plain way. And it seems like, as we were going home uh, back to married student housing, made sure we were by some tall shrubs so that nobody could hear us. Uh, we turned to one another, said, hey, what do you think about that? Oh, well, I think that I'm a Calvinist. Oh, me too. <laughs> so let's, let's keep that on the DL. And so we had a, an idea of what predestination is. And uh, if you've been around Sun Valley Church, you have an idea as well. And predestination, basically, I want to get into it in three different angles here because this is so important to our inheritance that we receive from the Father. And the first thing I want to talk about about our predestination is that if we're going to understand it biblically, we need to understand that it is a specific predestination. It is a specific predestination. Um, when it comes to God and his salvation in the lives of his people, he gets very choosy. He's very particular. He doesn't just cast a salvation net out over the mass of humanity and saying, I've predestined that I'm going to draw some people in. No, he gets very specific. And he has chosen every believer in Christ. And friends, how could it be any other way? We, if we know ourselves very well, and especially if we've thought in biblical terms, we know that not a one of us would come to Christ if given the opportunity apart from the working of God. And as surely as any of us enjoy this great gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, friends, it is because our Father has given us a specific predestination, a specific call The second thing I want to point out is that it is a divine predestination. It's a divine predestination. In other words, friends, we had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. How do I know? Well, there's a verb at the beginning uh, of this clause, having been predestined. It's all one verb, okay? Having been predestined. And... Um, it's in the passive, it's a passive verb. If you remember from your grammar classes, uh, when something is passive, it's done to you. It's not you doing the thing. And so this verb, having been predestined, it's not that we predestined ourselves. No, it is that when we were, had n uh, no ability to do anything, when we, God wasn't even on our radar, God the Father had predestined us to salvation. So he did it. And Israel, there's this parallel that we see in the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, um, in verses 6 through 8. Now, they were about to go into the promised land. They've been, they've been told that they're going to go in and wipe out nations that were stronger and mightier than them. They had already wiped out a couple of pretty notable kings, and I think they might have thought, hey, this is pretty good. And remember, we even stole from the Egyptians, and we got away with it, uh, and 
it's going pretty well. And so just to kind of uh, put things in perspective for them, God says to them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is saying, if you want to get as uh, specific as you can about this, why you were chosen, it comes down to this, I love you, I love you, and that's all you're going to know about the matter. That and the fact that you didn't factor into it. Okay, so just receive my love and walk with me. It's a specific predestination for you personally, a divine predestination that God himself took note of you in his love. And it is a Christ-centered predestination, which is exactly what's signified at the beginning of our verse when it says, in him. In him. In Christ. Whenever we see the words in him, in the New Testament, we need to be thinking in terms of a, 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 a glorious reality called union with Christ. Union with Christ, which should be one of the dearest doctrines to our hearts, one of the most joy-instilling, awe-inspiring, and grace-giving doctrines. Because, friends, what that means is that God doesn't just look at you as you. He looks at you in union with his son. And if you know anything about the way that the father loves his son, friends, you are roped right into that in this truth of your union with Christ. God chose you because he saw you in union with his son. He has wiped away your sins because he sees you in union with the righteousness of Jesus. And he blesses you with your inheritance in Christ because all of the blessings that belong to Jesus belong to you. And so there is no such thing at any given moment as you apart from Christ if you have believed in Jesus. This is our predestination. This is how we have received this inheritance from the Father. And if predestination is the answer to how we have received that inheritance, then the second part of verse 11 tells us how we were predestined. How we were predestined. And that is by the sovereign plan of the Father. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friends, we have a sovereign Father who is behind all of this. A sovereign Father. When we're talking about our Father's sovereignty, we need to recognize at least four things. First, his sovereignty is an effective sovereignty. It's an effective sovereignty. Friends, it actually accomplished the inheritance that we receive. As surely as God the Father is sovereign, all of his might, all of his power, all of his ability and uh, determination to bring about all things according to the counsel of his will is working 
for you and is working to bring you into that full inheritance that he has purposed for you in his son, Jesus Christ. It is so certain that he will accomplish what he has purposed for you that at the beginning of verse 11, it's referred to as already having happened in full. We have obtained an inheritance and surely we have. But friends, we have obtained it in part now, and we will obtain it fully in times to come. But that sureness of its completion is so much that he's referring to it now as having been completed. This is exactly the same type of thing that the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans 8.30 when he talks about our glorification, our future fullness in Jesus Christ when he raises us from the dead and establishes his kingdom. That thing that is still yet future is referred to as very real and completed now because of how sure it is in the plan of our sovereign father. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. Past tense, something that is yet to come. Because it is an effect of sovereignty, our fathers. It is also a total sovereignty, which is what's signified by that phrase, all things according to the counsel of his will. It's all inclusive. It's all encompassing. It excludes the possibility of any detail of human history or the universe being outside the scope of the sovereignty of our God and Father. This is a doctrine, make no mistake, that is hard for so many to accept. Because think about what we prayed for just a few minutes ago school shooting in Florida. Think about the, the things that have happened in the scope of human history. The sorrows that you have experienced. Things that are, things that are so bad that we wouldn't want to talk about them. These things fall under the scope of his sovereignty, otherwise we have not believed this verse. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. For many, this calls into question the character of God. For they will think, if that is true, that God's working all things according to the counsel of his will, then explain that in terms of his goodness. And we must, we must explain it. It must be dealt with. The church is, this is not a new uh, struggle for the church. The church has always faithfully sought to understand scripture in light of scripture and to craft confessions of faith very carefully in order to help us understand what is being said. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, in chapter three, the first part says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's what we just read. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Got it? No, that's confusing. Um, 
so let me, let me unpack that. Se second causes, contingencies, what are we talking about? Well, first, we see that God, from all eternity, has always been working all things together according to his purpose. So the evil is not some loose cannon force that has uh, the ability to ride roughshod all throughout the universe, wreaking havoc throughout human history, seeking to destroy you, and God is simply doing the foxtrot, trying to keep up and get one step ahead of it. That's not what's happening. We have a sovereign God. He is in control. Nothing will take him by surprise. And even as he is sovereign over everything, notice how carefully and clearly we must confess that God is not the author of sin. Friends, as surely as God is sovereign, he is also good. And because he is good, he is not the author of evil. And also, when it says that violence is not offered to the will of the creatures, what he's saying is that, yes, folks, we make real choices that have real consequences. When it comes to the sovereignty of God, it's simply this. Those real choices with their real consequences don't take place outside of the scope of his sovereign control over all things. And so we're left with this ancient dilemma. Is it that we have free will or is it that God is sovereign? The answer is yes. And how much more do you want? So someone asked Charles Spurgeon before, how do you reconcile the free will of man and the sovereignty of God? And he famously answered, oh, sir, I don't try to reconcile friends. You see, Scripture teaches what it teaches, and that's okay. And so that tension is part of the mystery of the glory of God. And we need to hold all truths in light of all other truths and know that God ordains to bring things about using other things, which is exactly what the confession means when it says that second causes are not taken away, uh, but rather established. God uses means to bring about his will. Getting into the details of how that all works together is really beyond the scope of anything that we could even begin to do. But when we know that we serve a God who is in control and a God who is working all of those things together effectively for our salvation, that, my friends, is a pretty safe place to rest. It's a pretty safe place to rest. Which brings us to our third point about God's sovereignty, which is that it is, a, it is a good sovereignty. If we ever question that on the hard days, if we question that in the wake of the next tragedy, if we question that, friends, then return to our passage. And remember, it is the same sovereignty that brought about your salvation. It's the same sovereignty that brought about your salvation when what we deserved was condemnation. And so for those who ask the question, how can God be good and powerful and allow evil to be so pervasive? We need, immediately need to ask the question, how could God be good and powerful and allow me to draw breath right now? Because I know what my heart was about yesterday I know the thoughts that were there this morning. The same God I would demand justice of, I would also demand my condemnation from. But his sovereignty, thanks be to him, has seen that my salvation has come about through his son, Jesus Christ. And all things will be worked for good for me. Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That sovereignty, folks, is bending the whole universe for your good. And one practical implication of this, and this is the fourth thing I'd like to draw out from this, is that it is an anxiety-crushing sovereignty. It's an anxiety-crushing sovereignty. See, your father loves you and is caring for you. And as he's controlling all things and promising to do so for your good, he continues to repeat the command that is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Fear not. As we sang earlier, be not afraid, for I am with you. Don't fear. Anxiety falls squarely in the fear category. And for anyone like me who has struggled off and on throughout life with anxiety, this, friends, is a balm to the soul and a warm blanket for our spirit. Within a few years of his, uh, of his death, R.C. Sproul wrote these words. I worry about tomorrow, and that is a sin. I worry about my health, and that too is a sin. We do not want to lose our loved ones, our health, our safety, our possessions. But even if we do... God is working all things for our good. Even our sicknesses and losses in this world come under the providence of God, and it is a good providence. Friends, it is a good providence. It is the providence that has seen our salvation. It is the providence that has seen our inheritance in Christ, an inestimable inheritance that God has given us in choosing to save us. And how do you not see his special love for you written all over this entire thing? The entire scope of history down to the molecule is mapped out by God. And if you have trusted Christ, then that includes your salvation and your predestination, which is how he's brought all of these blessings upon you, both now and for eternity. And all of that, friends, is not just because. It is for a purpose. It's for purpose, and that purpose is seen in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is the purpose of our inheritance. (coughs) That we might be to the praise of his glory. What do we do when we praise Well, you can think of it in terms of like this, if I could put it to you this way. With our words, we are, we're we're taking a verbal highlighter and we're just scribbling all over whatever it is that we're praising so that anybody who walks into the room would see in clear, vibrant color, this is the big idea. God is the main event. His glory is what we are about Not just in some things that we do. Look at the verb. So that we might be. That's the verb. That we might be to the praise of his glory. Friends, that's a verb of existence. This is the purpose of your existence. If you are in Christ. 
that you might exist for the praise of his glory so that the people who come into your life might see in great highlights from your living, your speaking, your doing, your attitudes, your words, that God is glorious. Verse 12, friends, might very well be put as the north star of our existence. The north star when we're trying to figure out what to say next. What to do next. Who to serve next. What to think on next. Is it going to highlight his glory? Well, friends, this is our inheritance in Christ from the Father, and it's good. And if you're like me, you go, okay, great. So I've been handed this amazing crystal inheritance. But if I know myself at all, it's not going to take long for me to drop that thing. And maybe it'll shatter. If this is the great salvation that God has given to me, my hands aren't very safe. I know how easily I mess things up. And I know for sure that if I can mess this up, I will. How do I know that this inheritance that God has given is secure? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered about the assurance of your salvation? Well, if you're like me, then you have. And that's why verses 13 and 14 might be some of the sweetest in all of Scripture for you, for me. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, this is the seal of the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Holy Spirit. When, oh, there's so many things we need to see here, but uh, let's begin with looking at when we were given this seal. This seal on our salvation, a seal, just so you know, before we get into it in a little more detail, was a wax mark that the Ephesians were very familiar with because in their culture, this would convey certain things about what, what was being sealed. It would convey certain things about who was sealing the thing. It was an authenticating mark. And when we see that the Spirit is the seal of our salvation, it is God's authenticating mark on our salvation. And it's given to us at our salvation. We know this because it says that when you heard the word of truth, well, what is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed at that point. And so, if any of the things that I have told you this morning seem pretty awesome to you, then it would behoove us to look at exactly how this came about. Perhaps there are some of you, I don't know everybody here, I don't know how it is with your soul, I don't know if you have the inheritance we've been talking about, but do you want to know how it could be yours? then we need to know what is the word of truth. Because it is exactly in proportion to our believing the word of truth that the Ephesians heard and believed, and thus were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's as we understand and believe that particular word of truth, to the exclusion of all others, that this seal of the Holy Spirit 
is given to us. And so I'd like to, I can't think of a better way than to use the words of scripture to walk us through what that word of truth is. And if you have any uncertainty as to what that word of truth is, if you could not tell somebody else right now, succinctly, what is the gospel? Then please listen, because this is it. In Acts 17, Paul was talking to a bunch of pagans on Mars Hill, and he said to them, trying to explain to them the gospel, and this is the starting place, my friends, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In him, we live and move and have our being. Friends, the word of truth begins with God. It begins with the God who is not served by human hands. He is the one who sustains all human hands. In him, we live and move and have our being. He gives to us life and breath and everything. He is our king to whom we owe full allegiance, to whom we are accountable. And that's a good thing because he is good and he is just, and he's exactly the king that you have always wanted. But as Solomon observed at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8.46, he said, there is no one who does not sin. There is no one who does not sin, and that includes us, each one of us. The thing about this God in whom we live and move and have our being is that in his goodness, he cannot ignore our sin, and in his justice, he must punish it, which is why all of us, being those who sin against him, are under condemnation. Eternal condemnation and wrath is the appointed lot for us by our own choice, by our own nature. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is the very bad news for us because we cannot do anything about it. We cannot fix it by doing enough good works We cannot pay it off by giving enough to the church. We cannot serve our way out of it. The word of truth, friends, the gospel of our salvation. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the word of truth to which Paul was referring when he said to the Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Why was he raised? Because when he suffered under the wrath of God on the cross for our sins, when he died for our sins and was buried because the wages of sin is death, he had paid it off. He had cleared the bank of all that was against us because his life was sufficient so that he rises from the dead, has gone up to heaven, and now offers to all of us who would believe in him free and full salvation. This is the gospel the Ephesians had heard, the very same gospel. This is the gospel by which they were saved, not only when they heard it, but as it said, when you believed in him. When you believed in him. When you knew 
that you had no hope when you knew that there was only one hope and his name was Jesus. And when you turned from chasing sin to follow him. So what about you? Can you say in the honesty of your heart that you have, like the Ephesians, believed that word of truth, that gospel for your salvation? You've heard it. Do you believe it? And if you cannot in all honesty and integrity say that you have, then I would say, why not? Why not now? I will not ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand while we all close our eyes, but not really because we're going to be peeking. We're not going to, no. While you sit, God is near. The word is in your mouth and in your heart, it says in Romans. Confess your sin to God the Father. Confess your need of his son. And as it says in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is a promise you can take to the bank. And in our passage, for those of us for whom that has been our reality, whether just now at this moment or for decades ago, in the last half of verse 13, we see exactly what happens at our salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, ancient wax seals signified about uh, at least four things, four very important things for our purposes. The first was security. Um, security. Well, think about the tomb of Jesus. Um, Pilate had it sealed, okay? So it was sealed. It was secure. It was not to be tampered with. When you saw a seal on something, it was a security marker that this thing is safe. Okay, it was safe. It also conveyed authenticity. How do I know that this is uh, something that belongs to the person that I'm told it belongs to? Well, I see their seal on it. They have a very particular seal. Nobody has a seal like theirs. And so when I see that mark, either somebody stole the seal from that person, which is unlikely, because they would oftentimes wear it around themselves. hard to steal it. Or this actually belongs to that person. And it's from them. There was also a sense of ownership that was conveyed by the seal. Because I know that when this is marked with that seal, it belongs to the person who marked it. Okay, This is kind of like, think about it in terms of cattle branding. How do I know that cow belongs to that guy? He's, he, his seal, his brand is on it. It doesn't belong to the other guy. And I better not try to steal it because I can't unbrand a cow. This is, this is a sense of ownership, okay, with that seal. And then finally, a sense of authority, sense of authority. Whoever seals the thing has authority over the thing. That makes sense, doesn't it? So we have these four things, security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. And point for point, think about this. The Holy Spirit, God himself, the Holy Spirit is on our hearts conveying each of these things about our salvation. And this is exactly where God intends to meet us when we're wondering about, have we screwed it up? Security. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, it says in verse 14, of our inheritance. 
if you want somebody's word, somebody's guarantee that what they have promised will come to pass, let me ask you, whose better word can you get than God himself? If you know anything about the Holy Spirit, let that suffice. The Spirit of the living God has been sealed to your heart that you would know from God the Father that you are irrevocably his. He could do nothing more than give his son, Jesus Christ, to tell you that he loves you. If you have ever wondered whether the Father is upset with you because you messed it up another day, you didn't get it quite right, he would have you look to the cross and see his son and say, what more can I do? And then look in your heart at your salvation and see who's there. The spirit, who is the security of these things, telling you, yes, you can rest. So you didn't get it perfect, but then again, isn't that what the gospel's about? You are secure. The spirit is there. Authenticity. Do we not, as it says in Romans, hear the Spirit speaking to our spirit that we are children of God? We have the Holy Spirit gently in a soft voice speaking to our spirits, authenticating to us our sonship from a God who is so good that he gave his own son for us. And do you not see the Holy Spirit authenticating in your very life the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, yes, slow as it may be, whittling away sins that have less of a hold today than they did last year. But do you not see, friends, and this is, this is why it is so important for us to be calling out the grace of God in each other's lives. Oh, friends, we should be the cheerleaders of the work of the Spirit in each other. Oh, I know and I am guilty of how easy, how natural it is to be critical of one another. How easy it is to sing amazing grace and then be legalistic with one another. But friends, the Spirit is at work in each one of us and he is authenticating our salvation in our sanctification. And so we should be the first ones to point out to each other because we're not going to see it in ourselves. It's like watching your own hair or nails grow. You're just not seeing it day to day. It's there. So you see it for your neighbor. You see it for your wife. See it for your brother or sister in the Lord and tell them how you see God at work. That is going to be an authenticating grace of the seal of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your brother's life. He conveys our security to us. He conveys our authenticity as those who belong to God. And he conveys our ownership by God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you, know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. What was that price? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
And so as an American, championing freedom, I can also champion the fact that I'm owned by somebody else, by God who loves me and gave himself for me. And I know this because of the spirit in my heart as a seal of my salvation, also conveying finally the authority of God in my life. What is the baseline profession of our faith? Is it not this? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's whoever believes in his heart, whoever proclaims with his mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. So we are not Christians if we do not at least profess Jesus Christ is Lord. And what do we mean by Jesus Christ is Lord except we are under his authority because we believe that lordship means something. And the very fact of the security of my salvation by the Holy Spirit means that I take that seriously. So there's no such thing as a Christian who knows nothing of the lordship of Christ in his life who says it with his mouth. You see why? Because the Spirit is a seal upon our heart, upon our salvation, telling us we belong to God. We are under his authority, and he has got us in his grip. He's given us his very Holy Spirit to guarantee to us the certainty of all that he's promised. And this too, as with our inheritance, he has done for a reason. And that reason concludes our passage. He's the guarantee, the earnest, the deposit of our inheritance. Which, by the way, let me point out, if you want to see a modern parallel to that, to the guarantee of our inheritance, or um, look at your footnote there, down payment, or in some translations, earnest. Think of uh, real estate. When you buy a house... Uh, you, wanna, you know the house you want because it, you, it looks good to you. It's, uh, it's, it's everything. It's got everything you're looking for, uh, and you want it. You know that's the one, but you need to go secure the loan, but you don't want to lose it to somebody else in the meantime. So you put down some earnest money. That's a, that's, a, that's a down payment just on the process so that that house will be off the market temporarily. It's not up for grabs. So that while you're securing your loan and sealing the deal, uh, It'll be there for you. So earnest money. Friends, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Oh, so beautiful. The Holy Spirit is God's earnest money on your soul. You are off the market. Satan may not have you. No circumstances may destroy you. You are his because he saw you from the foundation of the world in Christ and said, I want, I want him. I want her. And I have put my spirit down because I will have her. To the praise of my glory. You have the Holy Spirit as the bond between your soul and Christ for the same reason that you have the wonder of God's inheritance and salvation blessings, which is to showcase his glory, to highlight his magnificence. In Isaiah 43, the prophet says, God speaking through the prophet, the wild beasts will honor me, 
the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Friend, has God poured out the water of his spirit and the gospel on your sin-parched soul? Have you known the glorious inheritance that he has given you? If you are a Christian, then yes, you have. You do. My prayer this morning is that you would see with new eyes the wonders of all of this that God has done for you. I want you to see that your daily walk with Christ, which so often is just mundane and routine and unexciting and just ah, one foot plodding in front of another, that's so often how we go through this race. That this is actually the most supernatural and cosmic thing that could ever happen to you. That you could ever be engaged in. The most significant universe implication, glory of God thing that can ever be involved with you. And the result of it is that God's glory would shine through you in this dark world just a little more. And that as people know you and are recipients of the blessing of your life, they would be able to trace the beams of that all the way back to their source in Christ, to the praise of his glory. This is why you exist. This is why you were saved. And friends, this is why the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in you. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we thank you and we praise you for things that are uh, beyond expressing, that we have tried to express just a little, things that you have, oh, that you have written real words to us that we might understand and know, that we might be changed from one degree of glory to another. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, shine in our hearts through the gospel in increasing measure. Lord, anybody in here who has not yet known you, who has not been gripped by these truths, we pray that you would yet grip them, even now. We pray that the purpose of our salvation, the purpose of our very being, would be the purpose that would be all the more before our conscious living, with strength supplied by your Holy Spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.